Hello and welcome to the podcast, How Did You End Up Here? I'm Jamie Hay and I'm talking to people in interesting jobs and finding out what path they took to get there. This week is the second part of my chat with Paul Tucker, who's both a television producer and director, as well as a senior lecturer at the University of the West of Scotland. In part two, he describes his journey from working for free in California to a career as a TV director and academic in Scotland. So you start off on that and kind of unpaid, but that leads on to some, some it, other, uh, some paid work? It leads on to a little bit of paid work. Well, no, it leads on to a lot of not spectacularly well-paid work for Green TV and working with Frank, but it was a fantastic experience. Yeah. Um, mostly filming out in the Sierra Nevadas, this sort of mountainous region. We filmed spotted owls, we filmed oh. flying squirrels, we filmed all kinds of fantastic things, just great great locations a great experience uh, i tr- worked with him as a sound recordist and so then we would go and film really boring things like conferences in san francisco with me, me working as a sound recordist i hated doing that mm. i didn't really know enough to feel confident doing it and my one of my worst ever days work was as a sound recordist when i just completely made a mess of things was, uh, you know i hope i never have to do that again <laughs> um i i yeah but you know but it, it was it was money. I got paid for it, mm. um, and I did a few other bits and pieces of directing work. I got some work writing questions for a, what must have been a very early online quiz. Right. Um, so I, you know, I was scrabbling around to get bits and pieces of, of of money, but also spending quite a lot of time in San Francisco not working, yeah. which is great. And that was at a time when quite a lot of my mates were starting out on their careers as. Well, there were lawyers and I went to school with people that did law and people that did medicine. So they're trained to be doctors and lawyers and mm. making their way in careers. And I was quite jealous of them and starting to worry. But I also, looking back, think they probably might have been a bit jealous of me in San Francisco, walking down the streets. Just enjoying life. Just, yeah, having quite a, quite a good good time. Yeah. And you were there all, all together for... F- exactly, three three years to the day, I, th- I think it was. Yeah, so 90, February 93 to February 96. And because we're just coming on to the next stage of my working career, the documentary that I worked on with Frank, which ended up being called Sierra Meltdown, I think, he had started it before I got there. I was there for three years and it wasn't finished when I left. Right. That's okay. a completely different kind of television mm-hmm. to the type that I had used, been used to working and the type I ended up working. Mm-hmm. And he had to raise the money himself, so we would go to fundraisers, sort of inviting mm-hmm. quite wealthy or people that would be interested in the, the subject matter to contribute to the fund and trying to um, tap up uh, uh, fund-giving organisations to give a little bit of money here and a little bit of money there to pay to pay for the making of the film. Um we missed a bit. We had a, there was a big event that happened during the filming, which was the sawmill closed down because of the amount of logging had been reduced. That was a big event which we kind of missed, and then we had to go up and film it retrospectively because we didn't really have the money to to be there. Mm. Um, so it was, it was frustrating. I mean, the, the the film is great, and I wouldn't have missed that experience of making it for anything. But um, had we just had someone say, "Here's the money to go and make it." Yeah, it would have been a it would have been a lot easier, and yeah. a lot better, less heartache. But but you probably must have got good at problem solving and been quite creative and multitasking a little bit as well. Things that maybe if I you'd got had the good mind. at being the guy who wasn't taking sides in a pretty bitter environmental <laughs> industrial dispute. 
okay. really, that was that was able to talk to both sides. You know, as Frank as Frank did as well. Mm. But Frank's company was called Green TV, not just because his surname was Green. Mm. Okay. So, I was the guy that got sent in to they, talk. Say, Tim, you've been chopping down trees for a living and you've got three kids to feed but you aren't anymore could we talk to you no yeah and and they were all brand new actually yeah. they were all fantastic but mm-hmm. that was kind of what my job was i think because the fact you came from somewhere else helped i think so i think so yeah i was i was able to put on that i don't really understand what's going yeah. on here hat yeah. Which is a hat you see I quite often wear when I'm talking about Rangers and Celtic. <laughs> I don't understand any of this. No, just just yeah. a casual observer. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 true about the kind of, you know, I, I don't understand the religious divide in Scotland. I've come from outside it and, and I'm quite happy to be that. And sometimes it helps to, to not. Yeah. I'm not convinced I understand it, to be honest with you, either. <laughs> but... Um, so you, you, you take, which is probably not a well-worn path, which is San Francisco to Glasgow. Um, why Glasgow? Again, it was because Peg got a job um, as a lecturer in genetics at Glasgow University. But I have to say, I'm really, truly pleased that, well, I suppose I, not, to, not to be too glowing about Scotland and Glasgow, it was because I was really glad I didn't go back down to London I think that would have felt retrospective and um, it's something oddly familiar about the houses in San Francisco, a big high ceiling places, which is quite similar to Glasgow. Um, and and I came over and did a kind of a recce visit to Glasgow when must have been when Peg was coming over for an interview, I think, and went to see a few people. Um, uh, Alistair Scott at Loman Television, who's subsequently been a, a, a good colleague and friend and Alan Clements, who was then at Walk Clements, and various other people, someone at, at BBC Scotland. And I worked out that Scotland was a pretty vibrant production community and that I would be able to work here. Mm-hmm. Um, so we moved to Scotland. And um, I think this is a little bit of a cliche, but I think it's true that Glasgow is a friendlier city than London. I used to tell a story about when I, when I was leaving London... It was it, um, there were lots of terrorist attacks, different kind of terrorism, but still terrorist mm-hmm. attacks and fires and tube stations being closed down because of suspected fires. And every journey mm-hmm. into London felt like a bit of an assault course. And yeah. you were where you going to get in and where you going to get out. But also, I remember I was waiting to cross a road once on a zebra crossing, and um, a guy stopped. His window was down. He kind of stopped for me. He must have been stopped for something else. So his window was wound down and he kind of spat out of the window, sort of not at me, but sort of, yeah, you know, just don't. And I don't mean physically directed at me, but directed yeah. at me. And I remember thinking, what is that all about? Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. got into the situation in London where if anybody came up to me, mm. I'd be going, no, yeah, no, yeah, you know. Sure. And, and once it happened to me, somebody was, it was a tourist asking for how to get to yeah, yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Sure. And fortunately, I'd not quite said no. And so I was able yeah. to tell her where to go. And and this isn't true, but I used to I, when I came to Glasgow, I would say that you know people at London, I think they laugh at you, and people in Glasgow laugh with you. Mm. And and I'm glad that I came to Glasgow. And for all of that being from England, and I, I was a bit scared of being in, from England in Glasgow for quite a few mm. for quite a while. And if <laughs> if I went into a chippy, if I went into Greg's, I wouldn't shout out my order from the back. Yeah. I've got an English <laughs> accent. And if I was playing fives and the ball went out the court, yeah, I wouldn't this- shout for it. Because I was so conscientious, yeah. conscious, so conscious of having an English accent. Mm. I've forgotten about it now. Maybe sure. I should worry about it sure. now, but but I don't anymore. Um, and it, it took me a while to 
sort of ease into that and be kind of at one. And I did, I have to say, I did have an awful lot of conversations in pubs with people saying, no offence, mate, but, <laughs> uh, you know, usually then going on to talk about Jimmy Hill and the England football team and yeah. everything. And, you know, I've learned to to, to, Just, to ride that or not care about that or yeah. t- take that in the spirit in which it's intended, really. I'm a, you know, it's like being a Spurs fan and I've moved to Arsenal land in that respect it's kind yeah. of just a football thing yeah it's, and but, I can go and watch a Spurs game in any pub I choose exactly and there's no yeah there's no hassle mm. no <laughs> um, so what kind of what kind of what kind of jobs are you working on when you arrive in Glasgow I um, my first job was working on a programme called Scoosh with I think the company's called Call Crew Media and I'd started sending around CVs and selling myself as a producer and someone said to me do you know you'd find it a lot easier if you sold yourself as a director I wish I could remember who that was I think I know who that was but anyway it was good advice Mm -hmm. so I started selling myself as a director if I'm completely honest it was a bit of a blag to get my first job as a director on Scoosh but um but that went okay and then I got a job working as a director on Mega Mag, which was a children's programme but made by BBC Scotland. Didn't go quite as well, but went okay. That was the time that I'd, I... Um, we'd, we'd do lots of pop videos and I got handed... I wasn't starting doing pop and celebrity, but I got handed a couple of them. And I did... Um, uh, Peter... See, so can't even remember his name so long ago. Mysterious Girl. Andre. Peter Andre. <laughs> Right. <laughs> rehearsing his new dance routine down in London so I, I did that I came back and I spoke to the the woman who was supposed to be directing that but she'd stayed in Glasgow to direct her feature and I said so who are you working with today she said oh it's just a here today gone tomorrow band called the Spice Girls oh, yeah, yeah. Um, too much. there'll be nothing there'll be nothing <laughs> they'll come to nothing um, so good good experience it was also I also did a behind the scenes thing about Grange Hill and it was on that shoot that I was running around the back lot down in London in L Street and the door opened and um, uh, before I could work out if it was someone I knew or just someone was famous I said oh hello and it was Barbara Windsor and she said hello darling and I ran off it's perfect, perfect. celebrity exchange <laughs> She was, was she walking out the Queen Vic? She might have been. She <laughs> might have been the Queen Vic in there. I don't know. So that was me up and directing, and then then various jobs. Got a job working on Live Issue, which was three half-hour programmes. Um, and then this might be quite useful for anybody that's still listening about experience. So I'd never done half-hours before, and I remember going into the edit suite, and I was quite well prepared, but there was it was... Um, edited by a chap called Alex, who's now quite a good pal, Alex Broad, who's now one of the most experienced editors in best uh, offline editors in Scotland. And I thought he was one of the best at the time, but he wasn't that experienced at the time. But he thought I knew what I was doing. I thought he knew what he was doing. And we just, you know, and it all worked out. Yeah. You know, we just kind of rubbed along together and, and it all worked out pretty well. And the fact that you prepared, though, that obviously... Was a great. Says you don't. You didn't just turn up expecting someone I else to know what to do. You. I. I owned. I did hear a story around about the time that someone just turned up with a big pile of tapes and just sort of, kind of tipped them out of her box and said, "Right, yeah. get on with it." <laughs> I hadn't done that. No, no I no. had prepared, and I think that is the, that is the key. Sometimes they just there literally isn't time to have prepared, and you are going into an edit and you're viewing stuff because you haven't even shot it. Yeah. You know, you're an edit producer and you're sitting next to the 
director and you're saying right you do the bit that you understand i'll watch this and in mm -hmm. a couple of days i'll have the next bit ready yeah. for you but but if you can yeah it's quite a good idea to go in with a bit of a plan now any editor worth their salt is going to take that plan and say ha, 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 ha. Mm, I'll little you. does he know yeah <laughs> but in a very nice way yeah make it their own that's why you work together with an editor because yeah. you you want you know you you want to work with another creative mind that's going mm. to say why don't we try this why don't we try that because that yeah. you know they've got years and years which is why they're which is why they're in that job because yeah. they've got the capacity yeah. to do that yeah and i've never really been the kind of person that goes in and says, right it's going to be like this mm -hmm. i go in and say it could be like yeah. this and they'll yeah. say well boy it's like this and i'll say yeah yeah sometimes so, i'll say no actually i do think it should be like this yeah but you can but it's yeah. a kind of collab that's a real collaboration though that whole process yeah and that's the thing I really miss about working in television is that mm. true collaboration of working with a, with a crew when you're going out and you've got, it's like you've got a problem to solve over mm. the day. You've got to get from here, which is this end of the day, to that end of the day. Yeah. Um, and you've got to do a certain amount in that day. And if you're working with a really good crew, they're going to help you get that. It's a camera sound, lights. This, this is obviously the old days. Mm. Maybe even a researcher or an assistant producer and, uh, um, you know, you, you've just going to get it solved and i say i really miss that mm -hmm. but in a way I, I can't miss it because it doesn't always happen yeah anymore in television you're not going to mm -hmm. get that size of crew and and people coming up like me now would be self-shooting which i've never really i've never really done mm -hmm. um uh so but that so that's what i was doing in, yeah. in those years in, in scotland i was i was out directing I then did do some some producing. I produced eighty episodes of the game show Going Going Gone. Uh, um, is that studio based? Is that? Studio based. Um, and that's a different different discipline thing. in itself, yeah. is it? Yeah. Um, uh, with studio directors, I wasn't doing the directing in the studio, but I was kind of driving the the editorial, if you like, with lots of executive producers above me. Some of them based in London, coming mm -hmm. up with their own ideas and. And um, uh, um, you know, harp, diff, diff, like um, guest celebrities would come up for the day to do four shows. They'd arrive the night before, so you'd be going and having you know entertaining them with the, with the presenter in the hotel and just having dinner with them. Mm -hmm. um, so that you know that was a completely different but but good experience. And you know, so I'd we had we were commissioned to do thirty six originally, so. We would we got to the end of the run of the studio thirty six and I booked two weeks holiday. I thought great, two weeks holiday I can go away, don't have to worry about anything. I can come back and we could start working on the edit. Mm -hmm. The end of the the run in the studio, the executive producer rang up and said, "Any chance you can make another forty <laughs> four? So yeah. I still went on my holiday, but I was that. you know worrying all for the whole two weeks. It was pointless in a way going on holiday. Yeah. And then we came back and we did another forty four. Um, and. What other what other sorts of programmes you working on? Scottish Passport. Yeah, so that was a good period. Yeah, that was. I mean, I sometimes say that was a time when I had one of the best jobs in the world. Yeah, because I was working on a holiday program, um, and I was directing on the holiday program, which meant I actually went, travelled around the world, with, you know, good crews, good people, presenters that were good fun. Um, some not always at all, but every now and again business class right which is mm. a fantastic experience um so i you know i i went to the maldives i went to australia i went to argentina i went to the ice hotel i went to america uh costa rica I went mm. to cuba and costa rica with 
Ford Kiernan um, from and, Still uh, and Paul Riley from Still Game, mm-hmm. who were just brand new. They were it was that was the funniest ten days, one of the funniest ten days of my life. Uh, brilliant. Um, and so then I do that for about nine months of the year, seven eight months of the year, and then I'd move over onto the car program, work on a car program called Wheel Nuts, where we'd spend a day with really experienced crew, filming cars. Um, someone would turn up with a brand new car and say, right, get on with it. Um, there's one period where I was living in Pollock Shields at the time in a tenement flat in Pollock Shields. But I turn, there's, like, on the Tuesday, I drove home in an Audi TT. The Wednesday, I drove home in a Mitsubishi Shokan. And the Thursday, I drove home in a little Suzuki Jimny Jeep. They must have thought I was some kind of drugs dealer. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just done so, yeah. Fun, it was, it was, it was, of course, I need to add the the um, the rider that it was all very hard work. Yeah, but, of course. But um, the, it was great. There were some perks. Great fun, and still, you know, I know I used to say about you know the crew working at STV or everybody working at STV. You know, I've moaned about working on this job in some of the best places in the world. Yeah, yeah. so when you're sat there in a five star hotel, never happy. And as, yeah, as one as as a. As a cameraman once famously, famously said, never let them know you're happy. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keep it a secret. Now, you've also done a lot of work um, with shows for the Gaelic channel in Scotland. You obviously can't, I presume you can't speak Gaelic. No, I can't. Does that, is it a different, slightly different job to direct in something when you can't quite understand? Yeah, yeah, it is a different job. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm on location I'm with I'm with someone, an assistant producer. Sometimes the producer or executive producer that speaks Gaelic. Mm-hmm. So they say so. So it's a kind of a three-way process. Mm-hmm. So you usually work with the well. You never work with anybody that can't speak English. So you'll be working with the presenter, and and they'll do the piece of camera in Gaelic, and you'll say, John, I think that was great, Patsy. <laughs> how was? Yeah. No. Okay. That was. You yeah. Know, that was good. So you've got. Um, so you. That's. That's that's the way you work. Um, you need someone to, to check the words, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and I, I don't think I'm going to upset any native Gaelic speakers if I say that Gaelic takes a lot longer to say than than the English equivalent. Yeah. Never put a date in a Gaelic piece to camera because it takes forever to say 1973. Right. Um, and I once had set up. I'd set up a, a piece to camera. On tracks, walking alongside alongside um, Barlini Prison. We were in the prison, but walking alongside one at like Block D, I think. Um, and I looked up, we'd set up, and I looked up, and every window had someone like spread eagled up against it, watching what we were doing. Mm. And and um, this piece of camera was taking forever, and of course you had to get through it without without anything going wrong which yeah. included the you know the prisoners shouting sure, out yeah. and everything so that was pretty tense it's yeah. a long long piece to camera and I was thinking why did I write it like this yeah. but but um but that's so that that's different but it's fairly straightforward mm. um and then when you're in the edit sometimes I have worked in an edit with nobody that speaks Gaelic mm. and there's an old cliche about it you say you cut on the agus agus means and I think okay. and so once you get to well if you hear them say agus that that usually means that they're going on to another point or mm-hmm. another thing, and if you cut there, yeah, uh, or it means so or some kind of equivalent to that, you, and and so you and and you've got if you're working with transcriptions, English transcriptions, and then famously there are words that don't that 
there are no Gallic equivalents for, so they'll mm-hmm. use the English word. And um, the the main program I worked on had a kind of quite a lot of psychological terms and everything. So so you could spot them yeah. in the transcript, and you could work out roughly where you were mm-hmm. in the interview. And they were time coded, so you could work that way. And then the exec or the producer would come in and you say that that's you've, you've got too much of the sentence there. You need to cut that back and everything. Um, but what I would what I say to all of the programs that I've worked on in Gallic have been made with Patsy as the executive producer, Patsy um, Mackenzie. And um, she, I, we've often discussed about the fact that I finish a program and I'm happy with it, but I never really fully know quite what it is mm-hmm. because it's obviously, it's subtitled and it's translated into English and I'm not, I don't understand the nuance of it in the way that I would if it was an English yeah. language version of that program. Um, which I'm 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 fine with, and I've, I've really enjoyed doing it. And you're obviously part of a successful. You've worked for obviously many times. You're just obviously working well for as far as she's concerned, and uh, so you know your process has your your method work. has what is working. It seems to work. Yeah, and the, the second big thing I made was with Michelle McManus, who obviously doesn't speak an any Gaelic well she didn't when she started mm-hmm. but part of the story was that she was learning Gaelic yeah. so obviously that was, a, that was a lot easier Yeah. and then it's a slightly different process of making sure you've got enough Gaelic in it mm-hmm. because it's going out on BBC Alapone yeah, it needs yeah. to have enough Gaelic in it yeah. to be considered a Gaelic enough programme okay. um, uh, so you're, you're almost on a similar journey to Michelle in that respect and, you know neither of her you know, the, the presenter neither of you speaking Gaelic and yeah, you're having yeah, to create yeah. something in Gaelic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, what what slightly helped was way back at the beginning when I first moved to Scotland and I got my first job at the BBC on BBC Mega Mag, there wasn't room for me in the Mega Mag office. So I went in the office next door, which was the Gaelic office. So that, um, and I previously, in a year off before I went to university, I'd worked in Welsh-speaking Wales in North Wales. So this idea of the kind of minority language was quite, you know, something I was quite familiar with and yeah. happy with. And I kind of understood it from that point of view, mm. if you like. Um, so that maybe yeah. maybe that helped. Yeah, you had it. Um, one of the programmes, and then we're getting towards the point where... Where I where when I met you and stuff, so I'm so I'm, so I'm which I've, I've part of the story I'm more familiar with, and it was one of the first things you showed us was the documentary made with Edwin Collins, and am I right to say you you obviously uh, you directed that, but you developed did you develop that as well? Like that was your idea? Or? Well, that's a very good question. It was made through what was my production company called Monkey Puzzle Productions, but. It's, I, may, I worked very closely with a producer called Fiona Buchanan, who I'd worked with on Scottish Passport. And then when Scottish Passport became no more, we we um, worked on, um, famously say, STV started making Wheel of Fortune without the fortune. And then they made Scottish Passport without the passport called Homes, uh, um, Home, Home for the Holidays, which was Scottish well Kent Scottish folk coming mm-hmm. back and talking about a bit of Scotland that means means a lot to them and we've made spent three days filming in Helmsdale with Edwin Collins when uh, Edwin's grandfather grew up in Helmsdale and he spent quite a lot of his childhood there that was that was without doubt one of my favourite filming trips uh, particularly a morning when we went up to the Wallygo steps 365 slate steps that go down to the sea used to be used by herring fisher women I think um 
and, a, and a, a little secret place that Edwin had taken us to. And when we left Helmsdale, it was foggy and dreek and just a mm. really bad day for filming. And we drove up and we drove out of the cloud base and we drove into bright sunshine. And Edwin, perfectly fit at the time, sort of up and down these steps, me with a walkie-talkie saying, Edwin, can you do that again? We need to get another shot. It was just working with mm. the crew. It was just brilliant. Yeah. Then, um, and Fiona was there as a producer, and then um, before that series went out, uh, Edwin had his stroke, first of two strokes over four days. Um, and we stayed in touch because um, it seemed like a fairly cynical reason, given what was going on in Edwin and Grace's life. We just needed to know whether the show mm. could go out, whether the series could go out, because, the, you know, people above us had paid money and they, they yeah. were only... It's not fair to say they were only focused on the show, but, they, yeah. you know, could, can we put this show out? And it, 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 I'm sure it wasn't anywhere close to the top of their minds, but they said, yes, it's fine for the show to go out. So we were keeping in touch and keeping in touch. And Fiona and I would talk fairly regularly about the fact that there was a story here to be told, but we kind of imagined that Edwin and Grace had other things to worry about. So we'd, we, But we would frequently write an email saying, Fiona and I were wondering whether mm. we could, whether you'd be happy to be filmed in your process of your recovery because we hadn't we didn't really know whether there would be a recovery or what don't know whether they did and then lo and behold grace got in touch with fiona and said we think that edwin as a position is in a place now where we'd quite like to film some of his progress i'm not sure whether they even thought that it would be a program that they just quite like to have a record of his mm. progress so that he could look back and say i've come from here to there so we went up to see them in Helmsdale and we had a chat and um, they were quite happy for it to be a programme. And lo and behold, I think when I was in Helmsdale, I got a message via a mate from Pauline Law, who was one of the executive producers at BBC Scotland, saying they were looking for um, an artworks programme about Edwin and did we still have contact with him. So when I got back, I rang up Pauline. I think I'd said to Pauline that we were going. So the phone call must have come before we went up to Helmsdale. I rang her up and said, we've met Edwin. He's happy to make a programme. I think we can make the programme. It's probably going to be about ways of different ways of creativity because we thought he'd always, he's always been a, an illustrator and he was starting to do that again. So we thought it would be an exploration of that. She said, great, here's the money. I mean, honestly, in a week, that, <laughs> yeah. that never happens. Mm -hmm. So it's not a very useful story when trying to tell, talk about how development works because it never happens like that. Um, so that's we were kind of up and running. So then Fiona Buchanan and I talked about the way we were going to make it work, mm -hmm. and that we we were going to make it while I was working on other programs and she was working on other programs. We'd fit it in. So we we went down with the same crew that filmed on the first Edwin program. We mm -hmm. drove down to London, did three days down there. We did um, a few days up in Helmsdale. We were going backwards and forwards and. Um, yeah, we made 30 minutes, which led up to a release of a single that he had actually recorded before he was ill. And then we got a bit more money to follow him back onto his first live performance, which was a bit of a moment, really, yeah. kind of back on stage. Yeah, after. Sure. I mean, waking up in hospital, not able to read, write, walk or talk mm -hmm. to a point where he was singing his old songs and some new songs mm -hmm. live on stage. So yeah. it was great. It was a great... Um, opportunity to it was kind of like a documentary where um if you just point the camera at what's happening and then you know i also should say you know, i was talking earlier about how important it is to work with an editor 
it was edited with you know, a good friend of mine, Angela Slaven, who's a hugest Orange Juice fan, who's recently made a couple of films about the the um, music that period of the music scene in Edinburgh and, and postcard in Glasgow. Great, great films. Um, but she crafted it into the into the thing that it is really. With me going in and saying, I think it could be like this. Yeah. <laughs> she very politely sort of making it something slightly yeah. else that's the, slightly the collaborative process it's a collaborative about. process yeah and now i'm really it is something i'm really proud of and yeah do you know when i took this job 2009 when i took the lecturing job and i said to someone at the time just as long as i'm not showing that edwin program in 10 years time <laughs> i think i probably will be yeah but i've made you know i've done other stuff yeah since, but, no no you know but, it's something i'm proud of no absolutely and um so you talked about education how did the education come about Okay, so I'm in my, I was in my mid-40s and um, the job is still pretty freelance. It's still six weeks, ten weeks, twelve weeks, you know, here and there. Couldn't ever plan anything. I have an annual trip down to watch the uh, Trent Bridge Test Match with some mates. Been doing it for over 20 years and I could never say, I could never say to them, yeah, I'm definitely coming because yeah. I didn't know what was going to come up. And mm-hmm. if, it, if you were out of work and then a job came up, you had to do it. Or if you were in an important point of the edit, you couldn't leave it really. Mm. And I, you know, and it's fine when you're young, and then you think, am I going to be able to do this till I'm 65, 67, or even beyond? Mm. I, 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 I wasn't sure that I could. And I also went for an interview on a job that I really didn't want to do, and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have to do jobs like this. Mm. Um, and I, I previously mentioned a, a, a colleague friend called Alistair Scott, who was teaching at UWS at yeah. the time. And I'd been talking to him about the possibility of coming in and doing a, a kind of day about actually about the Edwin program, and then this job came up, and I applied for it, and I got an interview, which was a bit of a surprise. I did the interview, and then I got offered the job. Got offered the job by Anne, who's still still very much here, and you know one of our bosses, mm-hmm. Assistant Dean International. She rang me up and I said, "Oh, okay. Uh, can you give me a bit of time to think about it?" So she gave me three days, I think. And at the time, I put the phone down. I thought, well, that's, the, that's great. That's nice. Isn't that nice that they've offered me that job? Yeah. I'm not going to take it. I mean, I work in television. Why would I take a job in mm. education? But I thought, I need to give this some thought. So I rang up lots of really good mates and people that worked in telly and just people I'd known for years and years and years that didn't work in telly. And I'd talk it over with them over the three nights. And by the third night, by the time I was explaining it to them, I was thinking to myself, what am I even thinking about? really you know mm. this is a full-time paid job with paid holidays and a pension and mm. it's as long as they don't really screw it up after two years it's a job for life and i can still do bits of work in television mm-hmm. so i took the job yeah a couple of people saying i don't think you should do it you've still got stories to tell and you know but i i what i normally say to people is i'm about 80 percent pleased that I took it most of the time, 80 to 85% please, which isn't mm. bad. There are days when I'm down at 50 or 60% right. please that I took it. Um, because obviously with any large institution, there obviously comes, they come side of things that you, yeah. you, you're not maybe in there yeah. with the students and inspiring them and creating, mm. there's other things you've got to attend to, which is just a, a fact of life. And, it's a fact of work really. And yeah. when I was working freelance, I used to get frustrated that I wasn't involved in the organisation that I worked for, that they never really asked for my opinion in mm. any ways. I was never involved in the, the day-to-day running of organisations. Yeah. I just went in, I did my job, I went home. Mm-hmm. If only I'd realised what a lovely situation that was, because yeah, sure. now it's that bit that I find really frustrating. Yeah. 
And I think um, universities are in a position where they don't quite know what they need to, what they should be. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true just of UWS. It's true of lots of universities. They're struggling to find out what it is that they need to be and are students customers and clients or is it still the old traditional relationship mm-hmm. that that the educational establishment has with a student where they sort of they come and you teach what we teach you and you learn and you you know or is it somewhere in between yeah. and and I think where we work at University of Western Scotland is going through that in spades a bit and you yeah. know so sometimes it's frustrating yeah. but but I really of course what I should have when I was making that decision over those three days what I hadn't really considered, the uh, fundamental question that I needed to ask myself and which I eventually realised I needed to ask myself was, are you going to enjoy teaching people? Mm-hmm. Are you happy passing on what you, you know? And and I really am. I really like doing that. And I really like the fact that it puts me in constant contact with the young people without me thinking, these bastards are after my job. <laughs> I well, like helping yeah. people... Make, mm-hmm. their, make their way if ever I have you know and yeah. I, I really I just enjoy that really yeah. I mean you've got plenty of exa- there's plenty of examples of people you've they've come through and moved on to job you must enjoy seeing them yeah. move on and develop and, and that I sort get, of thing I, I get a, a, a vicarious pleasure you know pleasure yeah. pleasure in other people doing stuff I yeah. really do I really um, uh, the, the other day I was with Anne, assistant dean international mm-hmm. and we were at film city for some of for some i can't remember why it doesn't matter and there were you know film city is a place where there's lots of production companies based and an ex-student of mine robin came out and she she said hello and i was able to introduce her to Anne. and i said this is one of his ex-broadcast production student and what was noticeable was that she was talking television yeah she had worked in television for two, three, four, five years, I don't know now, and she talked like someone that worked in television. Yeah, of yeah. course she did. Yeah. Um, but that was that was truly encouraging that that and that's what happens, you know, mm-hmm. and you and you keep in touch with them on Facebook or however you keep in touch with them and you suddenly realise that they're 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 out there functioning completely in the television world that mm-hmm. they now in have it or radio world, usually television. Yeah. If they've sort of I've had a lot of contact with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm really you know that's yeah. great yeah. and eventually eventually you know um, you know they're going to be in positions where they're going to be production managers or producer directors or series producers and they can be offering jobs to people and that's mm-hmm. hopefully how the network yeah. gets built so someone was asking me last night whether did I feel my network of contacts had been reduced and it has been reduced but it but but actually, Scotland is a fairly slow turnaround of people, mm. and most of the people that I work with in television are still working in, in television in some way. But also, there's a whole new batch of people coming up that I yeah. know because I taught them, or I work with them, or you know, I've just yeah. been introduced to them in some way. Mm-hmm. I should publicly acknowledge the assistance you gave me in my career. So, uh, so thank. You. I should I'll publicly thank you uh, on well, behalf of myself and the many others. Most of it, most of it, you did by yourself. Because there's lots of other people that, shall we say, haven't taken advantage of the opportunity. <laughs> I was listening anyway. I was paying attention. Um, <laughs> finally, you've you're obviously uh, you've still got plenty of ideas yourself. You're by no means finished telling stories and still developing it. And you know, you, you mentioned obviously that you acknowledge that your job still gives you some space to do that. Um, you're still motivated in that direction to, to come up with developing yeah. new ideas and yes we um, 
just before Christmas, I went away for a couple of days with a mate of mine. We've always been mates for a long time. We've collaborated on writing pro projects for many, many years. He gets he is a proper writer. He gets paid as a writer. He makes his living as a writer and an illustrator. Um, we 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 as we will happily admit to anybody, we none of our joint products have realized so much as a penny but some of them have got pretty close i'll have bored you about the story of the people that steal the master tape of the 1966 world cup tape mm. that got pretty close mm. and we'd got about three or four ideas that we batted backwards and forwards over the phone and keith said to me look we need to do something with these so we went down to an a little cottage it was like with Nell and Y uh, well he thought it was going to be like with Nell and I it was actually much more luxurious than that um, was there vast quantities of wine involved there were minor quantities of wine and we didn't have a raw chicken in an oven ever okay um, and um, uh, or a Camberwell carrot and but we wrote up four ideas and you know two of them couple of them have gone back onto the back burner but a couple of them are sort of actively being considered by people which awesome. is you know and the truth is the truth is about any development idea any idea that you come up with any factual idea anything that goes through development in television it's probably going to end up in some kind of bin somewhere when I mean, they never end up in a bin they just mm -hmm. end up on your hard drive waiting for the next opportunity you've got yeah. to pitch them but but the, just the I really like the process of doing it and mm -hmm. of talking to people and people giving you feedback and saying, yeah. you know, you because you have to be quite, it toughens you up when people say, this is a bit rubbish. <laughs> and you have to you have to know whether to say, yeah, they're probably right. Or to say, no, actually, I think they're wrong. I think mm -hmm. there's something in this. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the key to creativity, yeah. I think, is sometimes you fight back and sometimes you don't. Sometimes yeah. you change it to their version of the idea mm -hmm. and sometimes you stick to your version of yeah. the idea. And I've got factual things that, that, I've lost, I've lost. If I'm honest, I've lost a bit of confidence in my ability to to get a factual idea off the off the ground. But I was talking to someone over summer about about ideas that I I had, and you know, um, the what I would what I would really like to do to make this i this job perfect and to take it back up to eighty five percent, ninety five ninety five percent happy, is to manage to come up with an idea that is commissioned in some form or another and I can make it in the summer, I make it over the summer. I, I've got some kind of credit or something that I can say to the students, I, this is what I did over the summer, yeah, what yeah. did you do? Um, and so I can, you know, and actually until about two or three years ago, I was working, you know, as a jobbing edit producer. You know, I haven't, since I became programme leader, I haven't really had the time, but if I can get back to something like that, it's all, you know, it's a, it's a, great job really and and i will you know you can't you know people say they're creative because they can't stop being it mm -hmm. i've never quite put myself in that category but i do always come up with ideas and and as long as you can find someone to talk them over with that's great and you can write them down on a bit of paper and then they become concrete and you send them off to someone and you never know what's going to happen you never know what's going to happen if that isn't a, a lesson for life then i don't know what is but Paul Tucker, thank you very much indeed for telling us. It's been us. a pleasure. Thank you very much. That's all for this time. Thanks very much for downloading or streaming this episode. And thanks, of course, to Paul Tucker for sitting down with me. You can follow me on Twitter. It's simple enough. I'm at Jamie Hare and give me any thoughts you have. Goodbye for now, though, and I'll be back soon with the next episode of How Did You End Up Here?